0: We're back. Did you miss us? I know. I miss talking to you and the rest of our friends last week.
1: Yes, but last week's episode, all about the science of celebration, was the perfect setup for this week's episode. We're talking about celebrating Juneteenth.
0: That's right. Last week, we talked about the temporal aspects and the food and different traditions that are all around celebrations. And so it's so important for us to consider the food around the celebration of Juneteenth.
1: My stomach is growling.
0: Oh wait, I think our legal team is saying we need to insert a disclaimer TT.
1: Yes, if you are listening to this episode right now and you have not eaten, please go and grab a snack. You will get hungry. Please. This is your warning now. Please go and grab a snack. I'm TT and I'm Zakia and from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. Oh, oh.
0: Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship.
1: Juneteenth is right around the corner. It's coming up this Sunday.
0: Yes, and this week we're celebrating Juneteenth through food. Specifically, we're asking more about how people continue traditions and tell stories through food and how people are innovating to create new takes on food in their celebrations and gatherings.
1: And of course, we're going to talk about some amazing and delicious recipes that I am looking forward to trying myself.
0: Let's go ahead and get into the recitation.
1: But before we jump into Juneteenth foods, let's talk about the holiday itself. What do we know about Juneteenth? We know it's the oldest
0: celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the United States.
1: Yes, on June 19th, 1865, a union general arrived at Galveston, Texas, to tell enslaved African-Americans that they were free and that the Civil War had ended. And this was two and a half years after President Lincoln had already issued the Emancipation Proclamation.
0: And so, Juneteenth, which was June 19th, quickly became an annual holiday where Black people would gather, especially in Texas, with their families to pray and celebrate.
1: And it took the federal government more than 100 years to catch up because Juneteenth only became a national holiday in 2021. Why is the government always late to the party? We don't have enough time in this episode. (laughs)
0: 1979, they were late for Black (laughs) Music Month, late for Juneteenth. (laughs) There are multiple dimensions of celebration, and we've talked about this in our celebration episode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of them that we're focusing on today is food. Food can be a way to learn history and to practice traditions and to connect with people. It's also kind of a way to mark the hope and renewal of a holiday.
1: Food is something that is universal. All of us are eating. But the types of food you're eating and the way that you're eating the food can be unique to different cultures and communities and even just specific families. Black communities all over the country have different foods that they cook and enjoy during Juneteenth. And part of the reason why this is so special is because the roots and history of some of these foods come from so many cultures all over the world that we have continued to maintain and celebrate during different times of the year. So what do we want to know?
0: Well, I think we want to consider all those things you just said and understand them about Juneteenth. So like what foods are important to Juneteenth? And why? Like what are the traditions behind them or what stories are they telling?
1: I think I want to know how food helps us to celebrate Juneteenth specifically and connect us not only to one another, but to our ancestry. And when we consider the past and
0: tradition, we always have to also look forward. How is the food of Juneteenth changing? What new food innovations, you know, because everybody's going crazy about the air
1: fryer. uh, (laughs) (laughs) We'll continue to come. I'm air frying my cereal still. (laughs) what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And as much as we look back at the tradition and history of food, we also want to look forward and see how food is changing, especially food that is connected to our history and Juneteenth's history too.
1: All right, let's jump into the dissection. (laughs) Yep.
0: Our guest for today's lab is Nicole A. Taylor.
2: I'm a food writer and producer and the author of the first... Cookbook solely dedicated to Juneteenth foods, Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations.
0: Nicole is a food writer and a master home cook. She brought her years of experience making food for her family and friends to Watermelon and Redbirds.
1: Nicole started writing the cookbook in 2019. She was living in New York City and in her spare time, she'd work on the cookbook, typing notes in the subway, writing on the weekends, and in 2020, that work took on additional meaning.
2: I was working on a story about Juneteenth for the New York Times. And that story morphed into so many different things because of the murder of George Floyd. And at that moment, that's when I knew that Black people needed this book. They needed this cookbook. They needed joy. They needed a guide, a roadmap, something tangible that was really a symbol of, in sorrow, in sadness, we still celebrate. We still gather. We still want to put a smile on our face. We still want to sit and talk to our peeps. And that's when I knew. I knew it 100%. And then now, as we are safely returning back to gathering with family and friends, hey, people want to cook. (laughs) People want to be outside.
0: So, as Nicole said, one of the reasons she wrote this book was because she wanted to give people a culinary resource for the Juneteenth holiday.
2: I have been celebrating Juneteenth for more than 10 years. And my apartment, my house, has always been the place that people gather for Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Homecoming Weekend, you name it. My place has always been the hub and the gathering spot for everyone, but particularly for black folks. And there's always a whole lot of food and a whole bunch of drinking. (laughs) So, I mean, why not put that in the cookbook and tell the stories behind it?
1: We can't talk about Juneteenth without talking about the cookout and barbecues, when people gather together and spend time together to eat.
0: And, you know, we talk about this all the time, Mm -hmm. especially in the South. (laughs) Cookout is the event Barbecue is a type of meat at the cookout. (laughs) But one thing I love about the cookout and for most summer celebrations, especially in my community, is that everybody
1: eats. That is very true. But it feels different when it comes to Black people. Like when I show up for a Black event, I have no worries. I usually know the food is going to be good. But if it's a non-Black event, I might need to have a snack before I get there. No shade, but we must be prepared.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because we're celebrating Juneteenth, we're going to talk about the experience of the cookout, whether it's on Juneteenth or any other day, and consider everything that's happening. Yes, there's the food, but there are a lot of other sensory things you're going to experience that don't necessarily have to do with food, but are really specific to Black events.
2: For one, you roll up and everybody is dressed to the nines. You can smell the perfume from your auntie with her bright red lipstick on. Your uncle has his gaiters on and the music is blasting. You already know what music is going to be played at least one time. Frankie Beverly and Maze, Before I Let Go.
0: I know if you go to TT's cookout, they're going to be playing ASAP Rocky.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like you sometimes you just got to hear. I love bad bitches and that's my fucking problem.
0: Oh gosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Y'all know I don't listen to that kind of music. So we all have these experiences at the cookout, and then there's the food. So let's start off with the sides. Nicole said one of the things you can almost always find is potato salad.
2: Mm. When you move around to the dining table or to the table where all the food is set up, you see the potato salad. And a universal question people ask is, who made the potato salad? And I just feel like those sensory things and those questions, you don't oftentimes find them at non-Black barbecues there or non-Black baby showers or a block party. There are some cultural nuances that I feel like you can always find them. You can always find them when there's celebration happening.
0: There's always something with a potato salad. <laughs> but let's dive into what we consider to be special about Juneteenth foods.
1: Nicole walked us through some of her favorites in her book, Watermelon and Red Birds. The book has an entire chapter dedicated to the most important drink of Juneteenth celebrations, the red drink.
2: I dedicated an entire chapter to the official slash unofficial drink of the Juneteenth party. And that's the red drink. That is essential. The red drink. Oh, the global, the African diaspora. Black people all over the world, we get the red drink. And
0: I think it's important to highlight that red drink has a place beyond Juneteenth. Yes, on Juneteenth, but it's Juneteenth and, okay? Mm -hmm. It comes from a tradition of making tea out of hibiscus flowers. And hibiscus is a plant that grows in tropical and subtropical regions. Nicole said that more and more farmers in the American South are growing it as well.
1: Black cultures all around the world have different versions of the red drink. And Nicole has a cheat sheet in
2: her book about what this drink is called in different places. This hibiscus tea minus the sweetener is known as bissap in Senegal, where it's the national drink, and in Africa it's called kardadee. In the Caribbean it's called sorrel, not to be confused with the green herb, and in Mexico, Aqua de jamaica. And at Black American gatherings, and in pop culture, it's called red drink. It's a ritual. It is a thirst quencher. Traditionally, if we go back, you know, a few decades, it would be hibiscus, right? In West Africa, you see steep hibiscus pods or tea in the Caribbean.
0: As enslaved African people arrived in the Americas, that tradition continued. But it took on other forms, like strawberries.
2: Creating strawberry lemonade for celebrations, it became a soda, a red pop. So that tradition of steeped hibiscus flower, where you can find all over the world where not only black people, but brown people too. Through the transatlantic slave trade, that blood, that redness, that fearlessness stayed in us. And so even now you see the red drink. (laughs) It may not be in the traditional form, but it's definitely on the table and it may be spiked with Hennessy or it may be spiked with tequila, <laughs> but you will see the red drink in some form at most, if not all Black celebrations.
1: It's so amazing how some of these traditions can last so long. They change, but their root stays the same. Right. And when you say red drink, everybody knows what you're talking about. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And my friend Zakia. If you have not had the pleasure of attending one of her cookouts, she has her own very special red drink that she always has to whip out. If I'm coming, this is what <laughs> I am looking forward to. And we call it Watley Water.
0: Yes. So for adults, it might be a drink with a little alcohol. For kids, it can be juice. But as Nicole said, it's still a product of your history.
1: I did not know anything about the red drink. Did you guys Look in your Spotify app right now, and there should be a poll. And we want to know which red drinks have you heard of? Thinking about how traditions can change, but can still hold a really deep significance, that's kind of liberating because it gives you room to experiment and innovate in the kitchen. And that's something Nicole focused on in her book. Taking those classics that people love and then making something new and delicious.
2: For me and this cookbook, I decided I would put some very classic things in the book, but maybe do it a little bit different. For example, I have this juicy, glorious chicken burger with white cheddar, and it's not that dry burger. It's like real nice and moist. And why did I do that? I have so many people who come to my gatherings and they're like, I'm not eating red meat, so I got them. I got them.
0: I feel like Nicole is taking us to a Juneteenth party. We've had all different kinds of red drink. She's describing (laughs) an amazing burger. It's
1: time for dessert. (laughs) Yes, I am ready. And since it's June, Nicole takes us right into ice cream.
2: What is the summertime without ice cream, particularly a nectarine, roasted nectarine sundae with caramel sauce and a honey vanilla ice cream? I share that in my book. So if you want to Wow, people with ice cream or a raspberry popsicle. You can do that.
0: Depending on where you are in the country, there might be a Juneteenth festival or parade. But Nicole said that if you don't want to do that and you would rather stay home, you can bring the party to you, to your house.
2: I've included a whole chapter dedicated to what I call Americana festival food, like the funnel cake, the golden crispy funnel cake. Not trying to toot my own horn, but my funnel cake batter is totally not super sweet. I got my batter just right. Sprinkled with powdered sugar. And in this cookbook, I give readers two options for toppings, mango, and of course, the very classic apple topping.
1: Let me tell you something. Funnel cake is important to me. That is something that... It is very important. I will stop at a fair that I have no intentions on attending for the funnel cake. Wow. There was a fair down the street and I was like, I'm sure they have funnel cake.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I smell a funnel cake. Funnel cake
1: and the turkey legs. Shoot. I will get a funnel cake and a turkey leg and it's time well spent. Wow. See, for me,
0: it's the ice cream. I remember growing up and my grandma making ice cream in this like mm. brown
1: ice cream maker thing. The one you got the crank on the side.
0: Yeah, it was like a special occasion thing. Put the ice and the salt. The ice and the salt. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now
1: Cuisinart is making my ice cream. And sometimes <laughs> Briars. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll hear more from Nicole A. Taylor about Juneteenth foods and the place of food in this celebration. We're back. We've been talking to Nicole A. Taylor, cookbook author and master cook about Juneteenth foods, their history, how they connect people and cultures, and their place in the Juneteenth celebration. We've talked about
0: cookouts, potato salad, red drink, all of it, okay? Ice cream, (laughs) funnel cakes. You're going to have to (laughs) take an antacid at the end of this episode. (laughs) But more importantly, we've been thinking about how food connects communities and also ties into our personal memories. We wanted to step back and look at foods in Black culture, food
1: that is central and shared. One is watermelon. This is a fruit from the African continent, and it's the cousin of the cucumber and pumpkin, among other vegetables
2: and fruits. For Nicole, watermelon
1: brings up deep memories of her childhood.
2: That fruit is so much a part of my summertime. I remember going in the grocery store when I was a a young girl, and you would see the big brown tubs with the watermelon stacked really, really high, and I would be begging to grab the watermelon and put it in the buggy, and then we would check out, and I would get in the car, and literally, I would listen to the watermelon go back and forth on the floorboard of the car, and then you would get home, and all day, it's like, when are you going to cut the watermelon? And My aunts and my mom, they didn't want that watermelon juice like all over the house. So they would give us a piece of newspaper and tell us to go outside. The kids go outside and eat the watermelon. That story to me is just pure joy. It is the story of so many black people in the American South, so many black people who live in Oakland, black people who live in Chicago. It's a pretty much universal story about a fruit that really goes all the way back to the continent to where... We're from. There's so many other fruits and vegetables that connect Black people around the world.
0: I love that. And it brings up my own memories, too. hmm mm-hmm. And it's just really amazing to think about how food is tethering people and communities. Like, we don't
1: know each other. We're having right. this similar experience. Mm-hmm, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Another food that Black communities share is sweet potatoes.
2: And I'm not talking about yams. <laughs> but... For real deal, sweet potatoes, as Jessica Harris told us in How on the Hogs, yam is this hairy, very fibrous vegetable. But sweet potatoes is such a part of the African-American, really the Black table. That's a vegetable. A lot of times we don't think about as being a universal thing, no matter where you are, from Brazil to West Africa to South Georgia.
0: And this is why conversation about food is so much more than just food. When I reflect on growing up, I don't know that I really thought about the African diaspora. It wasn't that I didn't know these things to be true. It's just I wasn't exposed to different folks from the diaspora as a kid, right? And so everybody I knew, it was just Black American Southern culture. That's it. Mm -hmm. But then I went to college and I started to hear Black folks from totally different places talking about some of the same things, both food, experience, tradition, And I started to think about these connected experiences around the food and the rituals around it, like, for example, frying fish on Friday.
2: It's the stories behind it, right? It's the story like the newspaper we just talked about and frying the fish on Friday and even putting to catch the grease, you would put newspaper down. So what I I think about it is I listen and I laugh. And sometimes I, like, sit back and go like, oh, my gosh, is someone, quote, Taking our food, but I know that beyond the food, there is a bigger story. It is attached to a person, it is attached to oftentimes, you know, unpaid labor, it is attached to migration, it is attached to our grandmothers, our mothers, and or even our sisters or ourselves. So I know that you can't gentrify a cultural food. Because that means you're taking our stories and our stories are in us. And I think like with my cookbook and so many other black cookbooks on the market, what we're doing is telling the story, reminding people. You may be in love with collard greens or sweet potatoes, maybe in vogue now, but here's the story behind that dish or that food.
1: When Nicole talked about here, the connection between stories and food made me think about how holiday experiences are so tightly interwoven with food. And we've been talking
0: about how Juneteenth and how food and Black culture are so intertwined, but how do all of these things fit together? Nicole has thought about this a lot, and I'm sure it was a heavy load on her as the first person to write
1: a book dedicated to Juneteenth foods. She said cookbooks have a permanence to them, and she wanted to create a permanent resource for folks to have in their kitchens.
2: It's forever. You can't erase it. If it's online, it's like, oh, wait— that website is down. Or when your grandmother write down her recipe and you pass it from person to person or you keep that spiral bound community cookbook or church cookbook, you hold on to the memories. And so for black cookbook authors, particularly for myself documenting Juneteenth and Black celebrations is more more than just me telling my stories. It's something to pass down to my son.
0: Nicole shared with us some of her own food experiences that she wants to pass on to her son and the future generations in her family.
2: I think it's waffles, waffles. I want him to master making a beautiful waffle. I want him to own a very nice waffle maker And I want him to remember how on Saturdays, even if it was a holiday or it was a regular Saturdays, that I made him waffles. That is something that is everlasting. It's simple. He can pass that on to his next door neighbor's kids, uncles, nieces, nephews. Yeah, I want him to know the feeling of his mother making him a waffle. What Nicole wants to do, showing her son how to make waffles, making them for him,
1: having him pass that on, that shows how sharing food and traditions is just as important as the actual food. Mm. It makes me think about, like,
0: yes, you enjoy, like, your grandma's cooking or your auntie who makes really bomb sweet potato pies, but what Mm -hmm. you may enjoy even more than that is the experience of being there with that person when it's time to Mm -hmm. break bread or watching them cook. You know, like seeing how they do things.
1: Yeah. I actually just had a conversation about this with my uncle because he was asking me if I knew how to make like jollof rice and all these things. I was like, Mm -hmm. no, not yet. He was like, all these years and you don't know how to make it. I was like, part of the experience for me is sitting in the family room and my mom is cutting up onions, blending it up the sound of the rice pouring into the pot and everything and then starting to smell it as she's Mm -hmm. cooking. Her scooping it out and making the perfect portions for each of us. And... That's part of it for me. Not to say like, oh, my mom has to be cooking for me. But I like it. It feels like so comforting to smell those smells and to hear those sounds. It's kind of like bigger than just eating the food and enjoying the food. It's like these traditions, like that's something that I would want to eventually do. And something that, you know, I feel like is a labor of love for her. And that labor of love, once I do learn how to, to make some of those foods, I can then use that as a labor of love for my friends and my family.
0: And I think that's so important. I can think about things that I have learned and then I put my own spin on them. So Mm -hmm. even though they were passed down to me, maybe I'm changing them in a way. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Nicole talked about because in her cookbook, there's a lot of innovation. Some Mm -hmm. of the foods are classics, but there are also some creative spins on the classics. And it feels Mm -hmm. like there should be some
2: room for that. Mm -hmm. When I was researching this cookbook and more so not even the recipes, talking to people about Juneteenth, folks who are from Texas, from Galveston or from other parts of the country who've been celebrating Juneteenth 20 or 30 years. I asked them that question, what's an essential Juneteenth food? I got a lot of answers. Margarita Hannah, she lives in Atlanta, born and raised in Galveston. After talking to her, she gave me permission to be as creative as possible with Juneteenth. So what she said to me is like, listen, we always had brisket. She's like, "I, I know this is crazy, but we had gumbo. (laughs) <laughs> at Juneteenth she's like it will be hot outside but we would have gumbo and I just remember her saying you can have whatever you want at Juneteenth that makes you happy that brings you joy that special food that special thing that you only have a few times a year I wanted to make sure in this cookbook that you get the essentials but you also get something that's that's different that are showstoppers Juneteenth is a
1: celebration, so at the same time that there are staples, classics, traditions, it's also about what the holiday means to you and how you want to feel. And that can be reflected in the food you make, share and enjoy. So at the same time that we carry on these traditions, we see
0: foods evolving over time. And some of that may have to do with being more aware about what's nutritional, what's healthy. We can reflect back to Lab 48 where we learned that your protein is only supposed to be about the size of a fist and basically half your plate is supposed to be vegetables. And baby, that does not include potatoes. That potato salad is out. (laughs) So Nicole is innovating in the kitchen to bring new takes to traditional Juneteenth foods.
2: I think we understand at the root of everything what our traditional foods are. Having a big pot of collard greens with pork fat to season it is a very traditional way of how we do greens. But I'm happy to say my mom gets it like when she sees me taking collard greens up and cutting them into really fine strips and putting olive oil and garlic. She's like, oh, OK, you're doing it the same way and it tastes good. What else you got in there?
1: You see how she did that? Moving from a more traditional collard greens to something that is a little lighter with olive oil, in the cookbook, Nicole pushes the envelope even further.
2: Make a pesto out of all of these leafy greens and put it into grains. Maybe even a traditionally African grain like fonio. is still connected. I think we, and when I say we, I think that Black Americans are very much in tune with what our traditional foods are. And we are at the point we're cool with playing around with them or, you know, putting our own spin to them.
0: Of course, some people might need to try new takes on more traditional foods before they're on board. And Nicole says that's okay. The most important thing is keeping the stories alive as you innovate with those foods.
2: Somebody's going to be like, what you just bring to the cookout? What did you just bring to Sunday dinner? You did not just put this in fill in the blank. And we're okay with it. And we're okay with being the butt of the joke. But then they tasted, and I was like, oh, this is good. Can you bring this again? So I think that's how we've evolved. We understand that one food, one dish, one fruit, one vegetable can have many legs. And we're, we're fine with it. As long as, again, back to the stories, that we keep the stories intact around the fruit or vegetables. That's the most important thing.
1: Of course, Juneteenth only happens once a year, but you can make meals special every day. I don't know if I have the energy to do it every day, but (laughs) (laughs) Nicole says it doesn't have to be
2: hard.
0: That's right. We asked Nicole what she recommended for people who might not be that confident in the kitchen.
2: In Watermelon and Redbirds, I have a chapter titled Everyday Juneteenth. Everyday Juneteenth. And one of the dishes in that chapter is pretzel pounded chicken. Yeah, it's amazing. It is a chicken breast or thigh pounded very thin and breaded with pretzels, breadcrumbs. Before you bread it, you dip it in fish sauce. That's the secret. That's the secret sauce. That's the secret ingredient. And a little egg. And it's essentially a schnitzel, right? But it's so gorgeous and it looks so fancy when you have a beautiful plate and you can put a bed of arugula or whatever lettuce you like on the bottom. And if it's the summertime or if it's not the summertime and you want to get some beautiful little tomatoes and put on top, wow, it looks like something you would order in a restaurant. I feel like it's the perfect weeknight meal that doesn't take that long and you can make two of them. If you're really hungry, you can eat one, but... You can just cut the other one up the next day and have it for lunch. Put it in a sandwich or put it in a salad and you cook them with gas. Pun intended.
0: (laughs) I love thinking about history through food.
1: Right. So exploring foods that bring us together on Juneteenth shows that we can form a really strong connection, a connection people share across different countries, cultures, and different environments, you know, like the red drink, but also foods that are really specific to like my state. So I grew up in maryland so for us at every cookout you have to have bushels of crabs and that is just a part of the experience
0: yeah food carries forward traditions in ways that nurture us and others so friends and family and it's kind of a living tradition even though it's rooted in the past it's dynamic and constantly changing
1: I think one thing that we've heard multiple times from Nicole is that it's also important to recognize where foods and recipes come from and to respect that. I love this episode because, you know, no matter if you're getting together safely with extended family or you're staying at home and doing something small and intimate, there are a lot of really great food traditions that you can do to celebrate Juneteenth or making some new traditions for your family to celebrate not just Juneteenth, but any holiday.
0: Yes. That was so beautifully said, TT. And it makes me think about some of our traditions mm. and some of the things that we share together. And so I think we should put some of that stuff on our website. Some of our own recipes to share some of our celebration with other folks. What do you think?
1: I think that's a great idea. And we would love to get some recipes from all of you. Send it. We will make it. I love getting a recipe. My friends and kids always send them to me, and I absolutely make them. So send us your recipes. You can send it to us on Instagram or Twitter, or you can call and tell us your recipe, and we will let you know how it goes. Our one thing for this week is Watermelon and Red Birds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black Celebrations by Nicole A. Taylor. You have to go and grab this book. We will have a link to the book in our show notes. And as you're cooking those recipes, make sure you tag us and Nicole Taylor.
0: That's it for this lab. If you're feeling hungry like me, I want to hear about it. <laughs> if you have a recipe idea, email it to us at contact at dope labspodcast.com. Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought about this lab. Or give us an idea for a different lab you think we should do this semester. Remember, we like hearing from you. That's 202-567-7028.
1: And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Nicole A. Taylor. You can find and follow her
0: on Twitter at Food And you can find all of her delicious recipes in her cookbook, Watermelon and Redbirds, available everywhere.
1: And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Labs Podcast.
0: TT's on Twitter and Instagram at DR underscore T-S-H-O.
1: And you can find Zakia at said So. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from MegaOm Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radelet-Mass,
0: Lydia Smith, and Izzy Ross of Waverunner Studios. Our associate producer from Mega O Media
1: is Brianna Garrett. Editing and sound design by Rob Smirciak. Mixing by Hannis Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, executive producer Corinne Gilliard and creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess
0: Borison, Yasmeen Afifi, Camus Ilolia, Till Kratke, and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us,
1: Titi Shodia and
0: Zakia Watley.